Batten and Brexit. Welcome to Batten and Brexit with the UKIP leader and UKIP MEP for London, Gerard Batten. Hello, Gerard. Hello, Ian. Uh, the series, of course, brought to you by the EFDD Group in the European Parliament. This is all about the musings, the inner workings of Gerard Batten's thought chamber. Um, <laughs> and it's a very busy place to be, Gerard. Let's start, of course, uh, which is, of course, the bread and butter of, of what you do. The Brexit update, should we call it that? Well, yes, I mean, <laughs> at the risk of boring the listeners, Ian, I mean, Brexit is going to be going on for a long time yet, I'm afraid. Um, you know, it's like watching something in slow motion, isn't it? What's the latest today? I was reading, uh, you know, there was a report in the Telegraph that the government is rumoured to be saying that it will stay, it's going to tell the EU that it will stay in the customs union during the transition period and even beyond the transition period to 2020 or even up to 2023. The government was denying it, saying that it's saying, Mrs May saying she'll leave the customs union. And of course, uh, as I've said many times before, you know, we've had, it'll be two years next month since we, we had the referendum and nothing has happened of a practical nature, really, in terms of actually leaving. They've got the withdrawal bill going through the House of Lords, who are doing everything they possibly can to stop it. Can I just quickly go, I know it's a lot, but can I quickly go through the 15 amendments that the House of Lords have so made these to are the withdrawal bill? Uh, we, we keep hearing this uh, about the House of Lords have now 15 times yeah. blocked... Brexit. I mean, that's the headline. They haven't quite blocked it, yeah. but they are trying their best to scupper it. That's right. And it's, as I've said on, on with this before, Ian, on many things I've appeared on, the, the, the political establishment wants to delay, impede and overturn. And these 15 amendments, uh, although they have to be voted on by the House of Commons so they can be defeated, they prove how the House of Lords is trying to do this to delay, impede and overturn and giving things on a plate to the Commons that then they can support if they want to. And we all know that we haven't got a majority in either house that actually want to leave the European Union. We haven't actually got a government and a Prime Minister that actually really wants to leave. So that's what's making it all so difficult. But if I can I whiz through them? For example, the first one on the customs union negotiations. Now, this would make the passing of a Brexit bill conditional on the government first attempting to negotiate a customs union arrangement with the EU. So this, again, this is a delaying and impeding measure because we can't actually have the Brexit bill till the EU has agreed something with us that they don't want to agree anyway. Second one, retained EU law. This is proposed by Labour peers and it would stop the government from changing any, any EU laws which relate to employment, consumer standards and environmental standards uh, and ministers could only change this so-called retained EU law by passing a bill altering it, which would require the consent of Parliament. So again, this is the House of Lords trying to keep EU law in place. The third one, the Charter of Fundamental Rights, uh, which is, says that this would keep most of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights on the UK statute book. Well, of course, a lot of people get frightened about this, that, oh, we're going to lose our human rights. What they forget, if they knew in the first place, was that the European Convention on Human Rights was actually modelled on the English common law, and Winston Churchill provided this after the Second World War, precisely because the Continentals have been doing such nasty things to each other and didn't have things like the common law, which prohibited many of the things that, uh, uh, that happened there. Uh, and so, therefore, they tried to incorporate it into their legal system. But the, what we've got at the moment has, has been called a criminals and illegal immigrants charter because actually what it does is stop us deporting foreign criminals uh, and, and migrants who've broken the law because of invoking their human rights, and we can't do it. So, again, this is another way of imposing uh, you know, EU supremacy over us, uh, although, strictly speaking, that's not part of the EU. 
Okay, number four, powers of legal challenge. Now, this would remove a provision in the Brexit bill giving ministers the powers to make regulations that allow challenges to the validity of retained EU law. And again, this is something about keeping the supremacy of EU law over domestic law. Number five, legal compliance. Retains the right of action in UK law after Brexit if there is a failure to comply with general principles of law EU law as currently recognised by the European Court of Justice. Again, this is putting the European Court of Justice in power over the UK courts and giving them supremacy. Now, the next one I really enjoy talking about, number six, to limit Henry VIII's powers. And, of course, Henry VIII's powers are the ability of Parliament to put things through on the nod, on block, once they've decided that they're going to amend yep. or repeal something. And it goes back to, obviously goes back to Henry VIII. Uh, and this amendment limits the scope in which members can use the delegated powers granted by the Brexit Bill. The so-called Henry VIII powers would allow ministers to use reduced scrutiny secondary legislation to alter primary legislation statutes. So it really it's a means of streamlining things and doing things once you've decided to make go down a certain course. Now, the Lords and the Commons have got upset about this Henry VIII-type legislation, but they never had a problem with giving EU law supremacy over UK law. And what they forget is uh, that EU regulations, which I vote on in the European Parliament, automatically come into force in the UK. Uh, the Commons has no say in it whatsoever, still less the House of Lords. And the most recent one is the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. It is a regulation which is going to uh, cause small businesses, charities, etc., small organisations, enormous cost and disruption and may put some of them out of business because it's so difficult to comply with. Yeah. It's an onerous piece of bureaucracy. And that's a, an example of something that because of the um, arrangements that the Prime Minister has made currently with Brussels about withdrawing from the EU, we have to, in the meantime, like now, adopt that yeah. law, which could be dropped in five years' time, but while we're negotiating, it has to be Yes, it, adopted. It, it automatically comes into force on the 25th of May anyway, whether Parliament likes it or not, because it's a regulation and regulations automatically apply. In actual fact, I would say don't enforce the thing because it's such a, uh, such a bad piece of legislation. But the government, in fact, not only are they going to enforce it, when we leave the EU, they have plans to incorporate it all in their own Act of Parliament, so we're going to get it anyway. But, again, I come back to my main point here, which is all that these wonderful defenders of democracy never had a problem with the EU legislating over us and something far worse than the Henry VIII powers, which was to pass regulations that we had to comply with whether we liked it or not. Going on to number seven, Parliament must have a meaningful role on the Brexit deal, and this forces the government to give Parliament a meaningful role after exit negotiations are complete. Now, it could lead to the Commons rejecting the draft Brexit bill and ultimately force the government to reopen talks with the EU in the closing months and weeks of divorce. And it isn't a divorce, sorry, I hate that term, it's not a divorce. We were never married to the EU in the first place. Uh, but having delayed and impeded, this is part of the strategy to actually have a, you know, a means of overturning the whole thing. Uh, number eight, mandate for negotiations. Uh, again, this is Conservative Labour and Lib Dem peers uh, putting through an amendment that would force the government to seek approval of Parliament for phase two negotiations with the EU. This is after we've got the withdrawal bill, what the relationship's going to be afterwards. And again, this is a whole impeding process that they're trying to, um, trying to bring about. Refugee family union reunion rights, number nine. 
uh, would introduce a legal requirement on ministers to uphold EU regulations relating to provisions and associations and rights obligations that allow those seeking asylum, including unaccompanied minors, adults and children, to join a family member, sibling or relative in the UK. And then this is again about keeping open borders, unlimited immigration and allowing the EU to dictate to us what our immigration policy should be. Now, still a few to go in. I'll whisk for as quick as I can. Northern Ireland, number 10. Uh, this would enshrine support for the Good Friday Agreement in the bill. Well, Brexit doesn't affect Good Friday Agreement at all. That's another red herring. Critics Just would... explain that, if you could, because well, there's, because there's that's... obviously huge question marks over this being the sticking mm. point that if we... Uh, implement Brexit, then you scupper the Good Friday Agreement. Well, is, is that a You see, this a is falsehood? a whole non-issue. There isn't a Northern Ireland border problem. There is an EU problem. The UK and the Republic of Ireland are two sovereign nations. And as has been pointed out by no less than uh, Mr Rees-Mogg, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the, that we don't have to do anything. We could just say, continue as we are, let things uh, just continue as they are. If that's what Ireland want and what the UK want, then who's going to build the wall? Well, we're not going to build a wall. The, the, the Irish going to build a wall? Are the, are the EU going to tell the Irish to build a wall? It's all nonsense. Uh, you could just continue. Ireland's always been a special case anyway because of uh, historical reasons. We could just continue with things as they are. There's no reason that it affects anything particularly, at uh, least of all the Good Friday Agreement. But it's all being conflated into an issue when there isn't one in the first place. And if I can just say, make a point on this, this whole thing about, ah, well, it would be a backdoor for people coming into Ireland and then coming to Northern Ireland, coming to the UK. Well, no, because, OK, say EU citizens came in from Southern Ireland into Northern Ireland, if they weren't eligible for council houses, medical uh, treatment, benefits, or anything else that a British citizen gets, uh, then they would come on a visit and they'd leave again, wouldn't they? Mm. And when people come from Northern Ireland, they have to come on an aeroplane or a boat, so their details are going to be checked. And if they required a visa, then they wouldn't be allowed across. You could have special arrangements for Northern Ireland. In fact, uh, there are already checks on people from Northern Ireland. The idea that there isn't is, is just not true. So you think so it again, would be, it's, it's a case of b building it up into a bigger problem, you think? Yeah, in order to delay, impede and overturn <laughs> <laughs> uh, number 11, future co UK cooperation with the EU. Uh, this amendment makes uh, the Brexit bill, uh, would force governments to be allowed to replicate any EU law in domestic law and continue to participate in EU agencies after Brexit. Well, again, this is about binding us to the EU. If the government wants to pass a law, if our government and parliament wants to pass a law, it has the freedom to do it. We shouldn't be replicating EU law into domestic law anymore in the future. Number 12, we're getting towards the end. Removal of the Brexit Day provision. Well, this is the most sinister one of the lot, I think. This would strike the exit day of the 29th of March from the bill. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you they're putting off leaving indefinitely. Uh, if there isn't a leaving date, then when do we leave? I mean, from far as I'm concerned, it's two years, too it's two years late already. But what they're saying here is let's not have one at all and go on talking forever and eventually get made... So they voted to not have a date? Yeah, yeah. This would prevent the government from setting a new Brexit day until it has been signed off by both Commons and Lords. So this is the idea that uh, they could talk about it forever. We never really leave, uh, you know, because the thing here is that they... As I said at the beginning when I started talking, uh, there, there's this rumour now that they'll keep us in the customs unions of 2023. Well, that will take us past the next general election, 2022, which is what I've argued all along. They'll say, oh, it's too difficult, we're not going to do it, and they hope that people are sick of the whole thing by then and will just give up and 
all the people that voted Leave will just be uh, de- completely demoralised and they can keep us in. Do you think that's the theory, that they're waiting well, for the atmosphere to change so that a new, uh, a different government or a different leader or a different party can reset the parameters? Well, I did, I did warn maybe about... Maybe even a second referendum? Yeah, I mean, I did warn about this right from the start, that the, if, if they're going to delay it and impede it and overturn it, well, they've got to have some time to do that because you can't just turn around and say to people, well, you're completely wrong, we made a mistake and we're not doing it. There'd be uproar, wouldn't there? But if um, they did that and eventually there was another referendum, I don't know, 2025 or something crazy like that. You see, I've always said that what Mrs May probably will come up with if she's still there, if she survives that long, is a, a withdrawal agreement where you don't really leave anyway. And I'll come on to this on the next one, the Norway option. Uh, if you don't really leave anyway, you might as well have stayed in. Then she can say, well, you can, if it's a general election, you know, you can accept my uh, not really leaving withdrawal bill or you're going to get Jeremy Corbyn and his Trotskyite momentum thugs. Which do you prefer? Oh, she won't be saying that, but that will be the underlying message in the election, won't it? She might be saying that. Not not on the media, probably. She's not a very straightforward person. Um, So that's a position that we could find ourselves in. And, of course, then what would that look like? Well, number 13, the Norway option. Uh, this, under this amendment, the government will be forced to negotiate continued membership of the European Economic Area, otherwise known as the Norway Option. Well, under the Norway Option, um, you would have to pay them money, obey a very large percentage of their laws, and have open borders, because that's what Norway has, and Switzerland has something very similar, although under a different arrangement. So if you have the Norway Option, you might as well have not bothered to leave anyway, really, quite frankly. I certainly wouldn't have spent the last 26 years working for it. If I thought we were going to end up in the Norway option, I would have taken life a bit why easier. Do, why do people keep citing the Norway option? Because it, as, it, as a sort of happy compromise, halfway house. It's an unhappy compromise as far as I'm concerned. It's a bit like, like if I give you, a, you know, an analogy, it's a bit like the old Soviet Eastern Bloc countries. They weren't part of the Soviet Union, but to all intents and purposes, they did everything they were told by the Soviet Union. And this is a kind of parallel uh, arrangement or a similar arrangement with the European Union. Norway's in it, Switzerland has a different arrangement that ends up in more or less the same place. So I would not uh, advocate that for, as I said, uh, any, any option uh, where you pay the money, obey the laws and have open borders seems to me fairly pointless in leaving in the first place. Coming on the last two, sifting of Brexit-related regulations would extend the proposed sifting mechanisms committee in the Commons and the House of Lords and make recommendations made by either chamber binding on ministers. So again, it's another way of, of tying us into EU law and staying under the uh, control of the European Union. The last one, environmental law, would seek to continue environmental protections currently imposed by the EU and create more powerful watchdog than the government has planned to enforce the rules. Well, whatever you think about environmental law, whether it's good or bad, uh, this is another example of the EU or EU law taking precedence over UK law. So this whole raft of amendments is doing exactly what I've said, delaying, impeding, with the objective of ultimately overturning by the House of Lords a lot of unelected people who don't represent anybody but themselves. And for me, this is they've signed the death warrant of the House of Lords. I'm now, and I think the rest of my party... Uh, would take the view, and it will be one of our policies when we when we update our manifesto, that we would uh, abolish the House of Lords as it's currently constituted and have a second chamber on some kind of a PR-elected basis. I mean, can the Commons... I mean, they could, but they, they could just, of course, vote all this away anyway, so... They can. There'd be nothing to worry about. 
Well, they're, they're, what it's doing, as I said, it's giving ammunition to the commons uh, for them to talk about, for them in order to take this up, this process of delaying and impeding. So it's merely feeding them with stuff that is wasting everybody's time uh, when we should actually be uh, well, well, well on the road to, to of leaving. And we could have done that immediately after the referendum, as I've explained. If we had a government that was really serious about leaving the European Union, then they would have taken the initiative immediately after the referendum uh, and told the EU how the process is going to work. Because why would you ask them the question, how may we leave, please, when they don't want you to leave and they're not going to give you a sensible answer? So you have to have a plan, you have to take the initiative and tell them how it's going to work. And, of course, it's never too late to do that, but we haven't done it for two years, and I don't see, certainly under Mrs May, I don't see any prospect of that happening. And, of course, to go back to the top of when I started, when we were talking about the customs union, this is another non-issue. Do you mind if I just say something about the customs union? It. Because we hear about it all the time. Probably a lot of people not familiar with what it is. The EU is a customs union. This is a 19th century idea. It's a block of countries where you have free trade within those blocks, but you put tariff barriers up against trade from outside in order to protect your own products, your own industries. Well, that's come gradually becoming defunct because the World Trade Organization has been negotiating tariffs down over the last 40 years. So it's, a, it's an outdated idea, but there still are quite a lot of tariffs up. Generally, the tariffs are about roughly about 4.3% across all a range of about 13,000 items that are subject to tariffs. They tend to be high on things like food, uh, cars clothing, footwear, which comes in from outside where the EU is trying to protect its own interests. And in fact, some calculations have been done by Open Britain. Uh, we collect about three billion in the common external tariff, which we then pass on to the EU because that's part of their income. And about a third of this, about a billion, is on clothing and footwear. So when Labour talk about staying in the customs union, what they're actually proposing is uh, to keep the costs of living higher for poor people less well-off people at the bottom end of the economic scale that they're supposed to be concerned about. And in fact, uh, Professor Patrick Minford, uh, who's uh, part of the Economists for Brexit group, uh, has estimated that abolishing these tariffs by leaving the customs union would lower consumer prices by about 8%, uh, apart from boosting GDP by about 4%. Um, so we could actually make the people at the bottom end of the economic scale better off by getting out of the customs union. And what if you, how do you solve this problem uh, of the customs union, in that we do have a customs union with the EU, and what do we do about it? Well, regardless of the customs union, the WTO rules oblige the EU to adopt the same tariffs for both the UK and other countries. They can't put up arbitrary tariffs. You can't do that under uh, WTO rules. So they couldn't penalise us by putting up tariffs if we just walked away and traded on WTO terms. And there's a little-known rule, WTO rule, that says that if you, if you do come out of an arrangement, such as we intend to come out of the arrangement with the EU, you can keep the existing rules for up to 10 years while you negotiate a new uh, trading agreement. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting it should take 10 years, but there is no reason for it all to stop on day one. We could say, right, as I've said right from the start, right, we're leaving. Everything continues the same, except you can't have the free movement of people. And we'll, and we'll discuss and negotiate a new arrangement. And even WTO says, yeah, you can do that for up to 10 years before you fresh something out. I think it could be done a lot quicker than that. And then you've got all this stuff about frictionless borders. Well, 
What they don't take into account, of course, is uh, when people talk about this as though somehow this is a great big catastrophe waiting to happen. The biggest trading partners of the EU are countries like China, Japan, South Korea, Russia. You know, the list is endless. And these people do not have trading deals. Most of them don't have trade deals with the EU. They just trade. Are they sending containers by China, sends in a vast amount of goods to Europe, as it does to America, in containers and whatever. And only about 3% of these are actually physically checked. There is a customs check, you know, arbitrary checks, I suppose, just to make sure things are not there, shouldn't be there. Uh, and uh, most of this is just done on the paperwork. It's done before you even get to the point where the goods cross the border because all the paperwork is filled in, the customs people have the paperwork. There's no reason why we can't do that. And there are things, for example, like the WTO Trade Facilitation Agreement, which has been signed by 110 countries, including EU countries, which is there to actually uh, make, uh, make customs arrangements smoother and more easy to operate. So all of these things are, in my view, complete non-issues which have been blown up. Of course, the EU can, can be awkward if it wants to, but we're giving it every opportunity to be awkward rather than saying, you want to trade with us? Of course they do. Can you imagine... If there was a real disruption, the German car makers are going to go to Mrs. Merkel, the French winemakers are going to go to Mr. Macron. They already have and said we can't have a disruption of trade because they're the people that live in the real world, the sensible world, not the bureaucratic ideological world of Brussels. Just a final point, Europol. Ah, yes, because there was a report, um, well, actually a press release came out recently, uh, which it said how they had this marvellous success of arresting eight uh, people because of large-scale smug people smuggling across uh, Romania, Serbia and the UK. And in fact, uh, this year alone, EU member states reported to Europol 23 incidents involving 400 people that had been smuggled across borders. And of course, that tells you, that's really the tip of an iceberg about what's really going on. And I had an interesting an anecdote on this, if I, if I can tell you. Uh, a few years ago, I had a um, company write to me because they were a haulage company. One of their drivers um, had come from across on the ferry, gets uh, to Dover, wherever it was, uh, drives up the road, hears noises in the back of his lorry. So he realises something's untoward, pulls over at a service station, looks in the back, there's some illegal immigrants in there, phones the police. Police turn up. They get the illegal immigrants out of the back of the lorry. Uh, they give, tell them to go away and report to the immigration centre in Croydon. Yeah? And then they summons the driver. The driver then gets fined £5,000 for importing these people. And the owner of the company wrote to me and said, this is outrageous, he's, you know, he's reported this to the police, he's done what he's supposed to do. So I wrote a letter to Mrs May, who was then Home Secretary, saying, well, how does this work? This man has done the right thing. He isn't the people smuggler. He's reported to the police. He gets £5,000. What do you think the next time going to happen the next time a driver finds somebody in the back of the lorry that shouldn't be there? He's going to pull over, kick them out and drive off. I never got a reply. And Silence. That, yeah, and that is not unusual. Another particular problem with a constituent of mine who wanted to get into Cyprus. He was barred from entering Cyprus, although there was no legal reason that I could find why he should be under EU law. And so I wrote to the, the Cypriots, I wrote to the embassy, I wrote to the uh, justice minister, never got a reply, wrote to Boris Johnson, who was then the uh, foreign minister, asking him to take the case up, wrote to him three times, including by registered mail, never got an answer. 
So if you're an M- MEP, and I mean, seriously, it was a serious yeah. uh, point, uh, you know, and it was, it was uh, my sure. constituent wanted an answer, never even got an answer. Nothing at all. Nothing. The veil of silence. Uh, that is it. Uh, find out more about what Jared is up to your website, of course, and on Twitter, which is at Gerard Batten MEP. Cheers, Jared. Thanks a lot, Ian, and thank you for everybody for listening. Mm-hmm.